When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Are you ready to take your screenwriting career to the next level? If you're a new or aspiring screenwriter who feels lost or stuck in your career, the Working Writer School is here to teach you what writing courses don't. Former student Dylan Evans said, There are a ton of writing classes out there, but this course helped me work through the stuff that I couldn't find anywhere else. I feel more prepared and more knowledgeable to take on the next phase of my writing career. Writer Nicole Bennett said, After taking this course, I have a clear framework for the mindset, productivity, networking, and financial management skills needed for longevity in this industry. And Jay Burlingham calls this course the map. This course has given me a map that I will return to again and again as I move forward in my career as a writer. Use code MMIH for 10% off from now until January 31st and go to theworkingwriter.com. That's theworking, W-E-R-K-I-N-G, writer.com to sign up today. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Bissell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, is out right now on digital and DVD. Woohoo! Watch it, please. I'm Liz Manishaw. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. I'm currently in pre-production on two more, Control Group and Best Friends Forever. I'm a distribution consultant who used to manage the Creative Distribution Initiative at Sundance, and I do sales. This week, we welcome producer extraordinaire Alok Mishra on the show to talk about the making of his Netflix hit One Bedroom or One BR, which expanded to Tubi on January 1st. Woohoo! Alok talks about how he and his team raised money for the feature, how they navigated a challenging shoot and the way he masterly promoted the movie from landing at their first film festival all the way up till now. This guy's a promotion machine. I mean, it makes me feel very inadequate in my promotion. After that, we play another round of The Game. But first, Liz, how are you doing? Oh, why don't you answer that first? How are you, Ulrich? I'm doing well. And it, it, this actually prompted me to talk about the thing I want to talk about is that I do feel very inadequate with my promotion of the alternate. I, I feel a little guilt over it every once in a while. And part of me is like, well, I just don't want to, I don't have money that I can just spend on Facebook ads week after week. You know, it's just like, what, what can I do? Like, I'm just going to put $50 a week, $100 a week into this movie. Like, no, I can't do that. Actually, I know I have a mandate for my wife and I'm not allowed to do that. So I need to stop spending money (laughs) on the movie, which I have. I only did it once. Maybe I'll do one more, but I just. You know, so that's one thing. And, but I mean, I could still just like do weekly posts about it, which I probably should be doing, but I just don't really like social media and I don't like going on there and like just screaming about the movie every week, every week, you know, but maybe I just need to Liz and just get over it and just do that. Is that, is that the answer that I just like promote it because I have to and not worry about that? I don't want to do it or is it okay? Is it okay if we just decide at some point that we're done promoting our movies and just let them be what they are? Like, is that so wrong? Yeah. Is that evil? No, no. You need to let go. At a certain point, you have to let go and just let your movie be, like, the legacy of your movie be what it is, I think. I mean, unless you were someone who had the budget and the bandwidth and that you set that aside for promotion for the next, like, two years, you you need to acknowledge that you are giving a percentage of your revenue away to someone else 
who is doing their own efforts. You did efforts before the film was released, and that's the time that most of your efforts will convert to sales. And right now, it's, what is it, like law of diminishing returns, right? Like you could hustle your ass off, but the momentum is not there in the same way it was before. So I would just let go and relax a little bit. And I think this is like a symptom of being an independent filmmaker is like not feeling good enough. Like it's just an overall symptom, like feeling (laughs) like you didn't do enough because there's no rule book that says you have to post 10 times and you have to get these trade periodicals to cover you. Like there's no actual quota you are encouraged to hit. So that means it could be anything. It could be the sky's the limit in terms of the quota that you personally feel you have to hit. And that's dangerous, right? Because you could just feel bad about not doing enough forever. So I think there's a time that you just let go. But I do have to say, different opportunities pop up even years after your film is released. And maybe this is something that I wasn't sure what to talk about during the segment. But I saw that there was a David Bowie fan convention happening in New York in the summer. And I emailed them and I was like, well, I've got this movie. Here's the trailer. I'd love to screen it. I have the non-theatrical rights for the film and I'd love to screen with you. And they were like, let's meet. And I think we're meeting today. Like we're recording this well in advance, but I think we're meeting on January 4th. But this is all to say like there can be sci-fi conventions, conferences, there can be speaking opportunities for about first time films like that will pop up and you will get little boons to your sales report because of these things. But you shouldn't kill yourself with the same intensity of the release promotion months after the release. I think that's really too much to ask of an indie filmmaker. I I think what I'm probably going to do is like some sort of end of the year post just sort of recapping like what happened with the movie and everything and just like that it's out in the world. We got all these wonderful reviews. You can check it out here and there and then maybe I'll boost it. Maybe I won't. You know, we'll just see. But I think that'll make me feel good. And then, you know, maybe I'll just do every once in a while I'll do something, you know, just for fun. Just like a post here, a post there, whatever. But I I don't, I want to release myself from the guilt I've been feeling about not promoting promoting my movie and I th- I thank you for that uh, you f- I feel like even when you just saying the words you just said I felt like a weight like lifted off my chest oh, like oh, okay yeah. you can breathe like you're not a terrible filmmaker you know yeah. and then of course what we're gonna hit Tubi at some point or one of those things you know we'll go on to one of the AVODs and when that happens I'll probably do another push just to be like, hey, it's out on an AVOD now. Check it out, you know? I think AVOD is the really exciting, like, could be really yeah. exciting for your film, to be yeah. honest. Like, I, it, yeah. I mean, not that I want to give you more work, but maybe that's a week of promotion and then you let yourself go yeah. after that week, too. You I, know? I think so. Yeah, I think I think leading up to AVOD, like, I might even take a, a page from Alok's book and maybe hit up some more reviewers around that time who didn't cover the movie and just be like, yeah. hey, we're, we're, we're popping up on Tubi. Or wherever we end up being, freebie, I don't know. And just be like, check it out. You know, we'd love, love to hear what you think of it, you know? And like, I, I've got a, a nice system. Like, it's kind of the same system that Alok talks about in the episode of like, you know, finding uh, reviewers online through on Tomatoes. Yeah, I think I'll probably do that. And that, that, that makes me feel like I'm, you know, giving the movie it's just, you know, just desserts isn't the right thing. Doing it justice, you know, giving it sure. the attention it needs. And not that I didn't do that before. I totally promoted the shit out of this thing. You know, I think one more hurrah in, in when that happens will be will be in order. Oh. Liz, anything else you want to say? 
It's it's New Year's. No, What's your, New Year's thing. <laughs> We're gonna talk about New Year's stuff later in the episode, so we can we can save that. Yeah. One thing that you can also save time to do is to support us on Patreon. Go over to www.patreon.com/mmhpodcast. That's the place that you can you know make sure this show stays alive and that Liz and I's voices keep on appearing on the internet every week. You know we do have sponsors, but like you know they're they come and go. They're here and there, but like. The Patreon is forever. So this is the way that, you know, make sure that, you know, we continue moving forward. And we've got at this point, this is January 2nd, the entire catalog will be behind the paywall. I am making this pledge right now. So if you want to hear any of the episodes basically earlier than season seven, you'll have to join up on Patreon for one ninety nine, and then you'll get access to whatever that is, 300 plus episodes of this wonderful show. Like basically the first couple legs of the Liz era and the entire, the entire Timothy Plain legacy of the show will be behind the, the paywall. So if you want to know about the beginnings of the podcast and the beginnings of making the alternate and, you know, how Liz in, ended up on the show in the first place, the only place to go is on Patreon. So check it out. You can also check out jambox.io. They're a royalty-free music and sound effects company with an emphasis on high-quality cinematic cues. Their composers have worked on soundtracks for Hollywood-level films, working with directors like Michael Bay and Martin Scorsese. They even offer customized plans to fit your needs, which is pretty awesome. So use the code MMIH to get a 20% discount on your yearly subscription today. But without any more delay, here's our chat with Alok Mishra. Alok, can you give us the elevator pitch for 1BR? A young lady moves to Southern California, trying to start over, and she thinks she's found the perfect apartment, and it turns out there is more to it than meets the eye. You say that again. How many days did you shoot? Initially, it was 15 days, and then we went back and did some reshoots on it, and it was tough. Uh, we shot it 2017, December 2017 initially, and we couldn't get the band back together, so to speak. A lot of our actors were working actors, and like our DP is like you know shooting Kendrick Lamar videos or some shit. So we got everybody back together August of 2018 and shot for another four days. So altogether, it was 19 days. Huh. There's like 15 million questions about that. Exact same length as my movie. Sorry, I just went. It's 15 extended to to, to 19. <laughs> yep. What can you speak of with regard to the budget it's ag ultra low budget so whatever that means to you and we definitely hit the top part of that that's that's what it was i can't say more than that because there are other investors and people who are sensitive about disclosing those kinds of things although i really feel i wish more people were you know even more open but we are constrained by our constraints can you say whether it's the new top end of sag ultra low budget or the old one because you shot in 2017 when there was a different amount. yeah it was it's 250 then and it's 300 now but even in 2017 you could go a little above if it was directly related to the if it was marketing or something like that so it's in there let's put it that way and then and there's always these these uh, exceptions you could get like you could apply for like some sort of waiver and then if like your project meets certain qualifications and you can go to 850 or whatever and it's like i mean you, you can know. go to 850 and still pay the sag people the same amount for the lower tier like that's right. the thing if you have enough people of color and women and handicapped people like this is the yeah, thing yeah, yeah yeah how did you come up with the idea or how did you get involved with the project well i mean i tested movies for 18 years i did market research for film and i finally and i you know did it for all the different studios here in town and on uh, in los angeles and, and also with a lot of you know, independent producers and so forth you know i kind of got to this point in my life where I was like, you know, what is it all about? And I need to do something else. And so I started trying to look for scripts and investors. And, 
you know, I have a producing partner, Shane Borister, who also worked on market research with me as well. We started a production company called Malevolent Films, and we decided we were going to try to do elevated horror. That's a, That was our sort of missive, like thinking man's horror movies. So we went around and looked for scripts and happened to run into my one of my wife's friends from high school is this guy, Allard Cantor. Him and his partner, Jared Murray, have a company called Epicenter. They're managers by trade. And they had a great script from a great writer-director, David Marmer. And they uh, actually sent me that script and another script. We had one of those lunches that you have, like here we use those douchebag lunches in Los Angeles where you talk about what projects you're working on and stuff like this. And you, uh, you just send me something and they send you something. And you don't read it for six months because you're a bastard. And then another project falls through and you're like looking for, you know, a, a movie to do because you're freaking out because like you just lost this other project. Allard has sent us two scripts, a movie called Tragedy Girls, which is a terrific film if you've never seen it. Yeah. And uh, this movie. And after I read both scripts, I was like, well, Tragedy Girls is a pass because it's hard to do horror and comedy believe me you don't end up satisfying one audience or the other it's a really tough thing to get right and they were like oh we just finished shooting that last week and i was like well what do i know (laughs) (laughs) but um the other movie was one br and so we uh, loved the script Uh, met up with david in fact the script was really great and we had to actually take things out of it because we had we were on a budget because we learned a lot i mean we were first time filmmakers and he was a first time writer director for feature so we kind of like in a way grew up together and and you know there's a lot of things i would do different the next time i can tell you this there's a lot of things we've learned from doing this uh, first first feature but the thankful thing was that we brought a lot of our own expertise to it in terms of you know marketing and trying to figure out like a path for the film that i think at the end of the day proved very successful and, it, and the movie itself was you know very successful at the, at the end of the day for our first feature but that's sorry answer the question that's how we met david david was the genius who wrote and directed this film he's definitely uh, one of the nicest guys you'd ever meet. You know, he'll never tell you he went to Harvard. He is like quiet, thoughtful, what a great work, working relationship. We, we had to, as far as that, because we actually, this ended up being a much longer production than we thought. And then we ran into just a ton of problems yeah, in terms of, you know, even releasing the film with COVID and everything else going on. So, but he was a great partner. Speaking of that, you got the script. Well, I'm trying to figure out the, we're trying to construct the timeline, right? So you started sure. shooting in 2017. When did you receive the script? And had you already gathered the financing by that point? Because you made that comment about how you had to adjust the script. Well, so, okay. So I had actually received it probably, I want to say in, I don't know, November or something like that. And I didn't actually read the read the script until uh, until March. Of 2017 or of 20, what year? Of 20, 2017. Okay. And we thought it was terrific and great. Da, 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 and we started trying to look for money for it. And as you, as one often encounters when one is a first time filmmaker, as much as I had really great experience, experience on the one end of things with like, you know, market research and, and testing and, you know, crafting a marketing campaign and everything else, no one's going to trust you. So I may have allegedly mortgaged an already paid off house for my portion of the money. Shane, my partner, put in uh, the other portion of it. And then David Marmer actually ended up putting in a, a very big portion of it as well. And, you know, it, it wasn't a dumb move. He was betting on himself. And, you know, what, what better chance to take but then to bet on yourself. So, so we had a financing basically in place by August of 2017. We kind of went into pre-production not soon after, like September, October, November. We were working out of uh, the epicenter offices of Allard Cantor and, and Jared Murray, who were the other producers on the film. And uh, we brought on some other 
experienced producers to kind of help us that had done you know a couple more films and stuff and just started trying to put the pieces together to get david everything he wanted and needed you know for the film shot the film uh t- december 2017 which you know for money grubbing producers you know you shoot then because people want to work for a little cheaper because usually they're not working during december and you know of course we give them like christmas off and all that stuff you know but we a week a uh, week between christmas and you know new year's day let's say they get that all off and we come back on the second third and fourth and finish everything off so so that was the timeline then then we started trying to edit and everything we thought we were going to have like a director's cut by march but sadly david's wife had their baby early and so he was you know stuck with having to take care of this baby and try to like help the editor do something and he was just losing his mind because he was you know sleep deprived and whatever else and so we didn't really see a, a, a director's cut till may and we always knew we were going to have to change the ending, to be honest, actually, because I thought it was because we were, I thought we were supposed to shoot one ending and all of a sudden get there day of day of production. And the one time the notes aren't in the body of the email is like they've changed the ending on me. And I was like, this is insane. We're going to have to you know definitely go back and reshoot this. And so they were like, let's see, maybe we can live with it. Da, da, da. And by May, we knew we were going to have to go reshoot it again like that. Uh, we went to reshoot. And if we're going to do that, we might as well, you know, got some more of those cinematic moments that were sort of missing, if you will. So we basically were able to go back in the beginning, at the end of August, beginning of September, to go and shoot this thing again. It was a, a tough shoot in that we had, um, a lot of the movies on sets, like every time the inside of the apartment is all set that was destroyed from the first shooting. But what we noticed was that my office and my house had the exact same floor as the apartment did. So we were able to reconstruct in a fake way, like there's a wall where someone's putting their hands on the wall, let's say, for example, and d- different things we could shift it in, in just my little office. Well, it's kind of a big office, but like it was enough space to go back and shoot some of those things again. And and then, then we shoot the ending. In fact, we shot two different endings at that point and wanted to like test it to decide what the better ending would be. And then we needed uh, to catch a lot of the stuff that was actually at the apartment, which was a functioning apartment, by the way. And that uh, was actually a challenge in its own right. But uh, everyone was really nice there, to be fair. And, you know, some of them wanted to be like in the movie. And I was like, free extra? Money grubbing producer. Sure, you can you can do it. Sign this waiver. We shot two endings and then went into editing it. And I can tell you, as an interesting lesson learned, and I thought from testing movies, people could see things with different eyes. Like if it's not a finished work, oh, they should be able to see it, especially if they're really, <laughs> se- really seasoned uh, screeners and stuff. And uh, here's the thing, they're, they're not. So just never, ever send it to anyone unless it's done. Because we then went on a tear of, you know, now we're, you know, 2018, we're like, I don't know, we, we, we have friends that are, you know, know people at Sundance and, and South by Southwest and Slamdance, blah, blah, blah. And all of them, you're rejected by them all. In fact, rejected by like 18 different festivals, just because we were like, ah, we, we got to just try because then we'll be waiting till next year, da, da, da. And the truth of it is that you should just wait. I mean, I know money might be an issue for some people and their investors or whatever, but in our case, it really wasn't. And because we were the investors and we were just like, should have just waited. That's not to say that we didn't actually have a terrific festival run. We actually, you know, definitely tried to craft, you know, to design a festival trajectory. And I did so much research into genre festivals, like that you know, Movie Maker Magazine let me write like an article about the top 50 of those. We, we actually, a bunch of producers and myself, horror movie producers, you know, Heather Buckley, who did The Ranger, and a bunch of people got together. And Peter Polk, who's like our executive producer on this film, but he's like the producer of like X and like Pearl and all the Ty West stuff and everything. He was one of the people on that list too. But we learned so much about the festivals. And so we crafted, when we crafted our festival trajectory, we just needed to get into one really great one. And we knew we could 
depends the other ones based off the strength of that one. So we premiered, actually, we premiered at Fantasia. And the second we got into Fantasia, we literally went down a list of everyone we wanted. And we're like, man, listen, we got into Fantasia. We'd love to make you our... I don't know, American premiere or European premiere or UK premiere or whatever. And so we did, we kind of went after them and all of them by and large said yes. And some of them even came after us once we were actually announced and so forth. So we were able to have like a 17 film festival trajectory and it was like all over the world. And we went, we made sure we went. I, I'm, I'm a big airline miles whore. Nothing won't do for airline miles. And uh, I had 950,000 of them when I started and I had 35,000 when I finished, if that tells you anything. And I didn't go, I only went to business class once and it was from like London to Australia, which is by and large the worst flight you can ever take. I'll just tell you this. <laughs> it's very, very many hours in the, in the air. So, but long and short though, we went to those festivals. We did the press. We met, we, we met the festival directors. We kissed the rings. We kissed the babies. And we made sure like that everywhere we went, there wasn't any organization that was too small for us to an interview with or anything you know we, we would, would do anything we could and we all of us went to every single festival and we sent actors if we had to if we were like you know four different festivals going on at the same time we sent actors or whatever it was to make sure that you know it was perceived and, and not even perceived like we do care we, we cared about this little film we wanted to get the word out on it we knew from the testing we had done so going back to the timeline, let's say, right? We're more of a finished copy of the film in March of 2019. And we start testing it. And we start, we do like, we can't do like, we can't afford a 400 person, you know, with all the bells and whistles kind of thing. So we do kind of the poor man's version of that, where we get friends of friends to come in and watch the film. We give them a little food, which is not usually done, but, you know, we give them a little fried chicken, maybe a, you know, a glass of wine. And they sit and watch the film. We have 20 people watch it at a time. And then we do a, a focus group for it because we had, because I knew all the moderators in the business and stuff. And they were friends. And so they'd come in and help me out. So we did five groups of 20. And then we collated the data. And what we found was that we had very little rejection of the film. People, people seem to like the film quite a lot. There's a, there's a score on there. How would you rate the film? Excellent, very good, good, fair, poor, right? And they would generally rate it very good. It wasn't excellent. We didn't have the money to be excellent, but they would rate it very good, which is pretty good in its own right. The other question we asked that's very important, which you definitely recommend the film, that score was also very high. So we knew because there was not that much rejection in the film and, and that score was high, that we wouldn't have to be fearful of like giving it to journalists and so forth, which is a whole other sort of like strategy that comes next. But I'll, say, I'll tell you this, there's so few even very good horror movies that are made a year. I, I'm it's sad to say that. Like, I can just tell you, they're like, there's like 20 a year, right? And if you have, like, if you're so lucky to get lucky, to get lucky, to be in that sort of top 20, then you better do that. You better market the shit out of your film because I guarantee you the horror audience wants to see it. And there's different fallacies they'll tell you, oh, Rotten Tomatoes doesn't matter. Yeah, it matters, actually. It does matter. It matters because if you have a movie that is not quite a pure horror movie, our movie is a psychological thriller with elements of horror. But you see, it's a thriller and it's a horror movie, right? And people who watch thrillers, maybe they do care about what that Rotten Tomatoes score says, right? We had a, a great team helping us distribute this film, Dark Sky, and they had a publicist who did all right. But after a while, they don't care about your film anymore. I can just tell you this. They don't. It, they have other things, other fish to fry and whatever else, and you can't blame them, right? But then it's up to you as, a, as producers and a, as owners of the film to go out and preach about the film, right? And if you're not quite a certified fresh yet, well, maybe you do this. Maybe you go look up 
a shitty horror movie. And then you see who gave that shitty horror movie a good review. Then you contact that person and you say, hey, listen, I'm just doing a postmortem on how our publicist did. And I just want to make sure they sent you the movie. And they say, no, they didn't. And you say, well, let me write that wrong. And you send them the movie. And then they give you a good score. And you have one more Rotten Tomatoes accredited review. And maybe you do that. Do you do that 40 more times than the 40 reviews you had prior? And now you have 83 reviews. And maybe that's what you do with your time over COVID, right? <laughs> so that's what we did. And we would do it for every opening we had. We, we, we would also to ask our distributor to put us in contact with the local distributor who was doing anything in whatever country we might be opening in, right? So we're opening in the UK. Well, let's talk to that distributor and let's figure out all the publications we can go to to get more reviews for this movie and get the awareness up because that's a huge thing. This is part of the special sauce, if you will. You have to have awareness of the film. There's so many movies that are released in this day and age and so much shit to watch that people can watch instantly. How do you rise above the noise? Well, I'll tell you, for us, we were supposed to have a theatrical release. It was April of 2020. We're sitting here at the beginning of March and we're like, ah, oh, this COVID thing will blow over. It'll be fine. And then I'm like, sitting there by the middle of March like, we are fucked. We are fucked. I'm sorry, can I, we can curse on here, right? <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm just like, all right. So we decided to shift gears, switching to doing podcasts, switching to doing every interview that we could get our hands on, no matter how big, how small, whatever, it did not matter. We knew that we had something that people weren't going to reject outright. The only thing people ding us for, and this is something we found out from the test screenings actually, was the thing with the cat. Like, we know we're not, I know from testing you're not supposed to kill an animal, right? But this is sort of essential for this story, and this is not a spoiler because it's in the trailer. I'll say this. I wanted to see more of the cat personally. I wanted to see the cat pop out of the oven, its eye explode or something like that. But the test audience told us they did want to see that. And thankfully, we listened to the audience and didn't include that and kind of cut it down even a little bit further and stuff. So I, that's I the appreciate only thing that too. Yeah, well, that's the only thing people reject us for is just that, right? So we knew that we didn't have a lot of rejection. We knew that we needed to do all the press and publicity we could. So we continued working on it. We opened really big on VOD, actually. Um, we got to like number three on you know horror section of iTunes, and we stayed there. We stayed in the top five for like three weeks or something like this. It, would, it did well all, all across the board, Google Play, wherever, da da da. Like it, it was just Amer U.S. and Canada that opened up first, and Netflix had actually seen the film and rejected us twice and we were like okay look at these numbers just look at these numbers just tell us like come on and they were like all right we'll take you for very little money but we'll take you and we're like ah <laughs> like it's like fools we're just so happy right but this is stuff you learn right the, you know but you, you actually you learn that you do want to go on netflix because if you can't you have crafted a very good marketing campaign this is the most amount of eyeballs that are going to see you in the streaming world that's the truth actually we basically found out at may that we were going to be on in august and we were going to be on VOD until then. So we never, of course, you're trying to tell anybody because you want to make money on VOD and TVOD or whatever. And so we, we do that the whole summer. And again, we're all locked up anyway. So it's just like, hey, let's uh, keep on getting these reviews. Let's keep on pumping these Rotten Tomato numbers and everything else. And we did that. By the time we opened on Netflix, we like you know, we didn't know what was going to happen, to be frank. I mean, like we had been in like, you know, every mainstream horror publication and everything like over the span of, of like that, basically that last year. We had appeared in everything a couple times. And we had been, you know, creating our own social media. Like we run our all, we run all our own social media accounts. And I mean, it allegedly might be me or other people that help us at times. But <laughs> we made sure we engaged, like all of our, you know, Twitter people and definitely on Facebook and any any review that would come out, we would thank the reviewer, post the review, whatever, and post it across all social media. 
And, you know, pretty soon, like organically, we got a following. I mean, and anybody and anybody who would tweet at us who liked the film, we always tweeted back to them. We always said thank you. We always like, you know, told them to please tell your friends. And that's people people don't do that, that, that enough. And that's a, one of the main more most important things is to tell your friends. Tell them to tell their friends if they liked it. If they don't like it, be quiet. Like, <laughs> but if if uh, <laughs> if you can convince them to do it, which we did and we made we made it to, like we made sort of a real community out of it. I don't know if you've like gone on the Twitter, but we, we kind of treat it like it's a real cult actually. <laughs> We're always inviting people to dinner parties and stuff and telling them, you know, if only Sarah had come to the dinner party, things would have been so much easier for her. You know, stuff like this is stuff that we tell her and we engage uh, our audience. And we, you know, we have like 5,000 Twitter followers just that have organically come up in their own right. So that's, that's a fun little, you know, fact to have to know that if you have that audience and they watch it multiple times and stuff, because I see people talking about it all the time, but we always say thank you. And we always like, you know, you know, retweet it, whatever it is, if it's positive, because we want to make sure that like we're building a community, an actual community, let's say. But can I can I stop you? Just sure. it's really this is a lot of wonderful information, but let's slow down a little bit and let's let's because I think all we're gonna are like super curious about like fifteen million things you've already said. I don't want to lose track of all those things, sure, sure. and then we can kind of finish the timeline too. Can we go back to financing because? The fact that you put your money in, your producing partner put money in, and the writer director put their money in, but you're essentially new friends. And, uh, you know, how do you vet someone and get into business with someone and put like actual money in? What was that like emotionally? Can you tell us how you vetted each other? Shane and I had known each other for over 15 years. Right. Like, we but were, this new writer director, you know, ha- that's a risk. Well, what happened was that, you know, we needed to go back and do the reshoots. There was two things. One, if he really wanted to have everything on the set and not use a you know practical location, let's say, but just you have to build a set and change it around. Like every time you see an interior of an apartment, that's a set. Whether it's like Miss Stanhope's apartment or her apartment or whatever, the, the, the torture room, it's all one thing that they keep on redressing every night. And so if he wanted that, we were like, look, we, act, we put in this much money. We're going to have to like pony up something. And so at that point, he's like, yeah, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. And so he was like, you know, trusting us as much as we were trusting him that we were going to all see this through and make it happen and stuff. Plus, you know, you, you get a sense of people, you know, Dave's a general, genuinely sweet, like smart, like really put together guy. Like he is, is just, you know, it's one of those people like, I know I'll be friends with him the rest of my life. Like that's the kind of guy he is. And, and, you know, the other producers were, you know, much the same as well. And so we were like, you know, we're in this broken down car that kept on breaking down. And like, we had so many different bad things that happened that we all kept our cool for. And, and, and that also reinforced that, okay, this is the right team. This is a great team. We're, we're all the same. We're, we, we handle problems the same way. We're not yelling at people. We're like, okay, what happened? Okay, how do we fix it? Let's think of this, right? So that, that, that gave us, I guess, the confidence or emotional, like, I mean, we, had, we, we knew our hearts were all in the right place to want to, to, wanna, to put the money in to do, the, do these things. I mean, look, it's always a gamble. All this is gambling. Filmmaking is like, you know, the wild, wild west. You don't know, I mean, you never know if it's going to work. You just pray to God, you know, it's, it's gambling. It's, it, it is gambling. Like, I mean, there's so few films that make their money back. I mean, it's sad to say, I mean, it's what it is, but you know, that, that, that's because of like, you know, predatory distribution people and different things like that, which I'm happy to talk about, but uh, you know, that's a whole ball of wax. It's just a mess like that. Uh, that needs to be restructured in some way, or it's being restructured, hopefully with these Avot platforms doing something, you know? So, so my point is answer your question. We, we felt we had the right team. Dave started putting his money in at the end. 
So he started putting his money in for, you know, we'd already put our money in. And then when we did the reshoots, it was, you know, a lot of it was just his money. That's how we felt. And that's why and how it happened, I guess. So when the movie's done and you're in your festival run, between, you know, having it go out to Netflix and, you know, being in festivals, did you sign with the distributor? And 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 what was that like? Or did you just self-distribute when you went on TVOD before you went to Netflix? Well, Dark Sky was well, your sales company, you said. There, there, are, there are a distributor. There are a worldwide distributor. Got what happened was that we, you know, we we purposely when we were premiering at Fantasia, we had all these companies that like, oh, send us your movie, you want to see it? Like, no, you can come to you can come to the screening if you want, but we're not sending out anything until those two screenings are done, and that'll be that. And you know, right after those, you know, screenings are done, you know, great review in Variety, great review in Hollywood Reporter. I mean, we have like 15 reviews that come up right away with one negative, right? You know, all right, there's, gotta, there's always got to be one, you know? That then starts a bidding war. We start meeting with people while we're there. Okay, we'll meet with you, we'll meet with you. We, we, with six different people were interested in the film, right? And we, you know, we had been researching distributors and we knew there's like a lot of crooked people in this business. Like, you know, I'll just say like some of them are like real big ones and they got like 90 movies they release in a month. And you're like, how are you paying attention to this film? If you got 90 movies, you certainly you aren't. And the truth of the matter is that they're not. I mean, they may have a publicist. And I mean, we had a publicist actually at the festival level, right? We, we hired a publicist for like three different festivals and it was, it was amazing money spent, amazing money spent because you want to like, you want to, you're going to, this is the first silo that you have, you're launching to like, to get awareness, right? The, the awareness is starting here, right? And it's going to, it's going to spread. And, and we had some distributors that are like, oh, I don't want that. I don't want you in so many festivals. And I'm like, listen, if, if 200 people in Australia is going to break you, then we have bigger problems than that. Like if you can't figure that, if you can't, this is free promotion. If the movie is good, they're going to tell their fucking friends and then they're going to tell their friends and then it's on everyone's radar. And like, for example, in Australia, we were number one on iTunes for two weeks in, in New Zealand. Like, I don't have that many friends over there to like do whatever. Well, we did like, you know, 10 interviews and we did like, you know, got 10 different reviews and sought out people to get reviews and blah, 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 blah. Like, I mean, we did all those things and that's why it opened because it had awareness first because it was in the Melbourne Monster Fest, which is a terrific film festival, by the way. And then it that had the initial release and we had all the, the press behind it. At every stage of the game, there's press pushes. There should be press pushes. But going back to your question, there were six different people that are interested. We researched who we thought was the the, the most honest. I mean, they're all ha- they, they're all gonna like pad some stuff. Let's just all of them do it. They do it so much that they just accept it. Like it's like honor among thieves or something. You know what I mean? Like oh, your trailer costs ten thousand dollars. I think it was like more like five, but whatever, you know, you have to cap your marketing expense. That's another big fact for, for you people to understand. Like, don't ever let them tell you that it needs to be like $95,000 or some shit. Even if you're going to release theatrically, let me just tell you, they're probably not going to release you more than like three to five screens, maybe 15 if you're lucky. Right. So they're going to say that that's where the money went. No, no, no. The money went for them taking people out at AFM on your dime to sell, quote unquote, sell your film. You know, it's a lot of, lot of horrible things that happen. But we knew Dark Sky was honest, you know, as honest they could be, because they, you know, the fact of the matter is that they will then give it out to other distributors around the world. And those distributors might not be as honest, let me just say, not all of them, right? Just, just fact. But as long as they are, we had our executive producer, Peter Polk. He had dealt with them on a couple of different other projects, House of the Devil and you know a bunch of other things. And, and we had another guy that we we're doing a film with, Marcel Sarmiento, who did the movie Dead Girl. And Dead Girl was also through Dark Sky as well. 
And both these cats were like, we vouch for them. I get, I get, a, I get a quarterly report and I get a check. I've never had to chase anybody for money in my life in regards to that company. Also, that company is a mom and pop boutique. They do care. They do care to the extent that they can about the marketing. I do care about, you know, giving you, giving you the right tools by, you know, work. They, we worked on our trailer quite a lot. We worked on our poster quite a lot. Our trailer got nominated for a golden trailer award. We lost to the Joker. Like, I mean, you know, the, we, we worked really hard on all of this stuff, right? Like, I mean, you know, it was like, you know, we, we put them through it. Let's put it that way. We went back and forth for months and they were willing to let us do it because I used to tra- t- test trailers for a living in addition to testing movies. So maybe I know something. I don't know. But we don't want to give a whole movie away. How about that? You know, like, that's the thing for me like that. So anyway, it, it's good. We had those partners. Uh, to answer your question, we had those partners and we dragged our feet a little bit to finally sign papers with them because we wanted to definitely make sure we did our festival Run that we wanted that we in our heads had planned, and so we did that. We we pretty much did every single festival we were supposed to do, except for we were when we were going to premiere. We were supposed to do Chattanooga, and it was COVID time, so we didn't we didn't do that. And I didn't want to do any virtual fist festival shit because, like, God knows, the day you're the first day you're on on TVOD, your movie is already pirated. So I don't want them to take any chances, even though they would tell you otherwise. <laughs> Just a quick follow up on that for Dark Sky. Did they give you an MG? Like, were you kind of recoup? from that so you said it was a bidding war so in my mind bidding war sounds exciting you know but i'm not sure what, what that meant really as far as financials you know we we got a good mg we got a good mg it did not make us whole but it was uh, very good for the time and for we talked to some friends about like all right like when you were a first time writer director for some producers like what could you expect and they were like, you'd be lucky to get this. And we got like, you know, 20 grand better than that. So we were like, all right, this this is good enough. And and to be fair, the other companies that matched that offer, none of them were willing to go more. And the other companies that matched the offer may have been bigger companies, but we talked to some of the people, we, we, we actually had become friends with some of the people whose films they had distributed. And they were like, fuck those guys. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, so we were like, all right, good to know. You know, like they promised us that the other they delivered on Jack and shit. And we're like, okay, we got it. So that that's that's how we did. We did our due diligence. And look, and anybody if anybody comes to you, anyways, like look, if if anyone's offering you this stuff and promising the pie in the sky, first of all, the projections, all the projections are bullshit. All of them are bullshit. It, 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 I mean, uh, divided by six. That's that's the reality of whatever they're giving you for projections. Okay, and that happens across the board. It's just like it's an infamous like part of the business. You got to go with people who are honest. You got to go on people who've been in business a while, right? At any one time, like any of these companies can be sold and now you're dealing with a whole different entity and you're like holy shit this company that was so great and gives give my quarterly reports has now like been absorbed by this much bigger conglomerate that doesn't give a shit about me and won't return emails right so that was another part that went into our understanding of it and, and what we did so i answer your question we did get an mg it was a fair mg it did not make us whole and and to be fair with you we're not whole yet we're, we're pretty close. I think in this next year, we should be. Wow. We're about to, we're about to be on like nine different AVOD platforms, including Tubi and Freebie starting January 1. Nice. Please watch watch us there and give us that sweet, sweet Tubi money. So yeah, um, we're going to be, like I said, Peacock, Voodoo, Voodoo or something, and then like Roku and Pluto, and there's like a ton of them. But January 1, we're going live with that. And, you know, we're, like, once again, doing a press push ahead of it just to get the awareness up there again. If people haven't seen it, please tell your friends, blah, blah, blah. And hopefully with some prime placements, we will, we will do well. Let's go back to the focus groups. 
it's so interesting that you have that as your professional career. You know, for the average indie micro-budget filmmaker, you know, they don't have hundreds of people, different demographics or different psychographics to pull from. What could you say in terms of giving advice to an indie filmmaker who wants to replicate something that you did in terms of these groups of 20? Well, first off, the first piece of advice I would give them, I would ask them, who is this movie for? Before they even make the movie, who is this movie for? When you're reading the script, do you have trailer moments? How many trailer moments do you have? Why don't you write down every trailer moment that you can see from the script, okay? To decide if this movie needs to be made, right? That's the first step. Secondly, when you actually get to the testing stage, right? Make sure it's not in too rough a state because like some people can't see with those kinds of eyes and imagine, you know? I would try to tell you, like, look, generally horror audiences, if it's a PG-13 movie, it used to be 13 to 34. Now it's more like 13 to 39. Someone would even say 13 to 44 is the age group you want to go for. If an R-rated film, obviously 17 to 39 or 17 to 44 is the age group. Who does your movie speak to? On just on your you know understanding of your material, do you feel like it's talk, speak to women more, or men more? I don't know. Well, you have we have a female-centric movie. We'll be able to have a very violent movie. So we'll 50-50 male female. Let's say when the studios are testing a movie, they ch- generally want to do 35% Hispanic, 25% Black, 30% White, and then everybody else. That's what you get. That's the breakdown. Well, how are you gathering that audience as an indie filmmaker who has just like a handful of friends who can withstand hanging out with that person on a daily basis? Well, you, you go through friends of friends, right? That's the ideal. You can do friends and family if you want, but friends of friends is better. And everyone for the production knows like 10 people, you know what I mean? Like they know some friends, they know some friends are in this age group and you try, you try to balance it as you can, but that's not a perfect science either, right? You know who you know when you're not paying someone to actually go back, go and get an audience for you, then you, you kind of go with what you have. But you have to make sure that they are enthusiastic about the kind of film that it is. So what you do is you write up a bunch of comparable films to your film, and you put it on a list, and you make sure that your friends, whoever is inviting the person, says, hey, listen, how many of you have you seen on this list? Mm-hmm. If they've seen at least two or three, okay, they can come see this. And hopefully in the theater, but that's tougher to kind of negotiate now because of COVID happening. And but as long as they've seen three of these kinds of movies, I think in this day and age, we're fine to let them come. I love that. Such a good practical advice. Wait, can we go back to what you said, because you said even before you go into production, you need to ask yourself whether the movie needs to be made. And I feel like yeah. we just jumped over that, too. Like, you you drop so many bombs, Alok, that like, I just <laughs> want to like, well, go back. I mean, Sure. I mean, look, look, there's so many films that get made because they're because people are like, ah, this is my art and this is my truth. Da, da, da. And like, how many people want to pay to see this piece of truth that you have? Mm. <laughs> and if it's not that many, then maybe we shouldn't fucking make it. Okay. Like, maybe we shouldn't go and put all these people through the trouble of your, your fucking vision. You know? I mean, like it's it's like look there's a there's a like there's also a, another sense to it where look this is a kind of this is a dangerous movie this is a kind of film that people would not, not normally make and maybe it's like maybe it's saying something about society that we, people don't want to hear and, and maybe it's not a popular review or something okay those films need to be made too but they also need to make their money back so how are we going to do that right like okay let's let's put a star in it let's figure out like can we get their audience involved can we get them to help us on their social media blah 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 you know, there's different ways to skin this 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 cat so to speak sorry that's that's mean <laughs> given the cat violence that goes on i'm sorry i'm sorry <laughs> da- david marmer actually loves cats by the way that's the most horrible thing he can imagine it does happen to his cat if he was here on this podcast with us he'd literally have a cat going back and forth on the screen and stuff like that that's why this is the this is was the most horrible thing that could happen i have three cats so i'm okay, like so mortified I- watching that <laughs> 
<laughs> oh well, look, we tried to make it really short, so you just turn your head, you can miss it, right? And so it kind of is. It, just it was short. effective. It was like I hate these fuckers. It was great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, so you find out there's a there's a fine there's a there's a fine line between art and commerce. You got to ask yourself who this audience who's the audience for this movie. Okay, well, I think it's, you know, blah, 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 blah. Like, for our film, it's actually pretty broad, weirdly. We knew that, you know, if it was done in a tasteful way, we, can't, we do have the violence, but the violence is meaningful, and it's not, like, it's it's purposeful, and it's not, like, what's the word I'm looking for? It's salacious, or it's not, it's not, it's not terrifying, too, I can tell you that. Like, <laughs> 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 which I love, by the way. Like, I mean, it's just that, but that movie's out there, I can just tell you what. But it's it's not too extreme. We, when we do it, it's purposeful, it, it makes sense in the story. Netflix came to us after, you know, we had done so well and we're like hey listen we love your movie because it's the kind of horror movie you can watch with your mom and we were like i don't know whether to be insulted by this <laughs> but i'll take it because what that means is it's very accessible so we have a huge range of people that love the film actually i mean just on our imdb stats or whatever like 18 to 30 is only like 30 percent of our audience our real audience is like 30 to 50 which is like i think 50 percent or 60 percent and then we got like 50 to like death or whatever. And that's another like, I don't know, like 20. It, it's, it actually is a very nice spread of ranges, which explains why we know so many people have watched it, actually. We have a very interesting range of, of, of response to it. And generally, it's all very, very positive. And we know people are telling their, telling their friends about it because the fact the the rate, of, rate at which they tweeted about it and that we trended, whether it be on, you know, Google or even like if you look on IMDb Pro, you could tell, you know, oh, God, our movie's like the number 76 looked up movie like this today. Oh, that's amazing. You know, like who knew, right? And all our all of our stars, all their like IMDb, their their numbers went up like through the roof and stuff. And like, so we knew people were watching and we knew people were telling friends. That was the main thing. Sorry, I don't know if I answered the question or not. I'm sorry, but- I, You I also have 13,000 ratings. So I think that's another way to know that people are watching watching your movie that's a yeah. lot of ratings bro <laughs> well i didn't i you know i didn't i didn't quite know what that but also letterboxd as well too i'm trying to understand what that means for letterboxd too because we have quite a lot there too but what i tried to do is just i looked at our contemporaries who i felt had done you know a pretty great job marketing their films like the the, the keep on mentioning the wretched the wretched is like our that's like our like doppelganger sort of like in terms of like you know the only difference between us is that we couldn't convince our uh, distributor to to open in uh in goddamn drive-in theater we were begging them to do it we're like god just do it just do it yeah. like you know like well we don't have relationships with those guys and this guy's they, they were number the one like, number one no, they in were. You, you, you could you could have taken a little piece of that pie man you know they made like three four million dollars off of that shit like uh <laughs> like we would have been like whole you know whatever immediately and stuff but you know it's it's hard because like you know with those drive-in theaters they're, they're shady as they are anyways but then they have a whole thing where like are they going to give you the money back are they actually telling you the receipts and this <laughs> you know what i mean like that's where it becomes a bit shady but anyways yeah so they 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 have the almost exact same amount of people that watch them too so that helped us know okay well we're, we're hitting about where we should be hitting for a, a film that is you know a very good film let's say instead of you know an excellent film so i'm a stock in your rotten tomatoes right now and i was just looking through some of your impressive reviews you have so many but i noticed that there's lots of different dates on when these reviews are happening like you've got them from april 2020 you've also got them from like August 2021, you have some from October 2022. What is your strategy for like getting all these reviews? Well, what, what we would do is like, look, your movie doesn't open day and date all over like the same time, right? So we knew like, for example, we, when we did, when we did our festival run, we got like 20 reviews just off the festival run, I'll say. Then when we were doing our uh, actual opening, 
got another 15 to 17 reviews. And then we kept on trying to drive the reviews ourselves, actually, and like doing the, the strategy that I'd mentioned earlier. So we did that. But then when we would open in England, we would talk to our distributor, Bluefinch, for example, out there and be like, all right, like who, who do we need to go after? Who are the players in this market? Like da, da, da. Oh, we need to go after him. He's like the godfather of horror. If we get, if we get the say-so from him, then the rest of the horror outlets there will pick us up and blah, blah, blah. And so we did those kinds of things. So you'll see like, okay, we had a bunch of reviews that happened around June 6th of 2020. You know, that's another burst we have. Then it opens on Australia. I don't know. I don't know. Then we, then we're on Netflix in 2020, like in August. So then there's another burst of like flurry of reviews. And then it opens in October in Australia and New Zealand. So there's another flurry of reviews. Every time there's an opening, if we could, we tried to work with the local distributor to try to see if we could get, you know, reviews for Japan, reviews for Germany when it's open, reviews for uh, Scandinavia. There's four or five different countries over there and stuff, right? And what we did is we would talk to our, the people whose festivals we went to. We were in uh, you know, Night Visions in Helsinki, right, uh, in Finland. And we're like, we became good friends with these people, actually. And so you'd be like, hey, you know, Mika, can you can you help with the guy that runs the uh, Night Visions? Like, can you help us out? Is there any like local journalists that are, you know, Rotten Tomatoes credit or, you know, even beyond horror genre journalists? Are there anybody else you can kind of, you know, get, put us in touch with that could help us and could get the word out, da, da, da. And they were so willing to help, right? So this is another resource you have if you go to the festival and you become friends with these people and they like you and you, you know, tell funny fucking stories or whatever. Fuck it, take them to dinner. They take they're all paying for everybody else you take them to dinner they'll remember you you know so we we did all that stuff and so when we when we opened up these different territories we would you know just the this is the playbook do it again do it again do it again and so we kept on doing it and you know funny thing is like you know we were on netflix for the last two years but for some reason the second year of the deal they took us off from like august to january right during halloween and we were like what why are you doing this like this is the best time to have us on netflix and they, they didn't want to listen to us we, we were on this year during halloween for the first time because we were all we were off every streamer except for being on tvod that, that last year when they took us off this year just completely unexpected we got three reviews we got three reviews in october and i don't i mean i'm it's a halloween movie it's always on everyone's top horror movies on netflix and now it's been like top horror movies on amazon and top horror movies on shutter kind of thing too we op we opened up we finally got uh, free of our exclusivity from netflix this last july and so we had all these different new people new eyes that are seeing us in this and that and you see it in the social media when people are tweeting about it. you're like oh okay okay this is interesting but i'll say this nothing has been bigger than netflix as far as people the accessibility and people watching it there and then talking to their friends and talking on social media about it say what you want about it it's still the biggest baddest whatever in the jungle right that's the truth of it that's the real truth like i said this this last october like we just had three reviews and i don't know why like it's like okay i'll, I'll take them they're all positive it's 83 reviews i mean we're up to we're up to we're at 88 percent right now if we get another uh, i think three reviews we'll be to 89 percent. so if someone wants to do like a review about it one day again lose rotten tomatoes please watch it and give us another review i'll take it <laughs> <laughs> if it's if it's positive, it's if it's positive. We'll try to do our best. But, well, this could be an official call to action. Anyone who's listening, please do a Rotten Tomatoes review on this film. It is time for our final six questions, though. So I'm going to jump right in. Alok, what is the first film you ever made, and how do you feel about it now? I made a short film in 1999. I produced a short film in 1999. That was it was a parody of the. There was a television show called The E True Hollywood Story. And we did the 
E True Hollywood story of Jar Jar Binks, <laughs> and it, it may allegedly be on YouTube someplace. I don't know, but what happened was that the E Channel. It was like there was a thing called what was it? I iMovie or I something? Uh, what was it called? It was this huge. It was YouTube before YouTube was, and it was like this little movie was like number one on there, and, and everyone was really excited. And the E Channel was even excited about it, and they were going to do a a, a a a story on Star Wars shorts, and and they did, and we're supposed to be in it, and all of a sudden we're not. And what happens is that they got mad because of the, the even though it was guys in parody, they some of their legal got lost their mind. And so we were like, okay, we had, we knew this day could come. So we have an F true Hollywood story available and ready. And uh, they didn't want to do it uh, because the, the, they were just uh, scared that he, he would sue them or something like that. And so we were able to like get this thing out there in another fashion and it just blew up. Like we were interviewed on CNN we were in Entertainment Weekly. We were in Daily Variety and Hollywood Reporter and all this shit. And here's the problem. Lesson is this. We took a year to make this thing. We didn't work on anything else but this. And when they came to you and say, hey, what do you got next? buddy and you have nothing then you're a moron and that was the hard lesson learned from that but that was my first film that we ever made <laughs> and what's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received i would say vet your distributors if you if someone's coming to you go along imdb pro look up like five of the films they represent call those people uh, you know the, producers are usually really really willing to talk to you and, and tell you like look this guy's bad news they're horrible people they did this to me they did that to me da 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 Vet, vet your distributor because like, people like do go through so much trouble to make this movie and, and do this and do that. And maybe it turns out to be good. You're so fucking lucky. You're in that, that top 20 that, that does exist every year in this genre, right? And then you get to this and then they fuck you, right? So that's that's what I would say. Vet your distributors. That's that's one of the most important pieces of advice I could give. What's the worst filmmaking advice you've ever received or heard? The Rotten Tomatoes didn't matter. I mean, look at this. You go to Peacock. You know what's on Peacock? Oh, it's your movie. And also there's a Rotten Tomato score right there. And when people are scrolling through all this crap, they and they're like, you know, the other thing too is in terms of advice is make sure you have a, a fucking good poster. In this day and age, unless it's an interesting poster, people are not going to stop for you and they're not going to see what it is. But Rotten Tomatoes matters. If it's if it's just a blood fest, a gore fest, it maybe it doesn't matter as much. But if you have something that it's a sub-niche or a, a cross-genre type of film, it absolutely does matter. And people, streamers are putting that up nowadays so think of that even in the tvod sense like on itunes or wherever like that that little number is going to help people say well i'll take a chance on this film eh, let's see it's, it's got some good reviews it's certified fresh you know that kind of thing so that's that's what i would tell you do you have a goal as a filmmaker i want to make thoughtful horror movies I want to make horror movies that aren't like hopefully as predictable. Hopefully we have a bunch of projects that we're, you know, very close to, to going forth with, including a sequel to one uh, BR. I, I want to make something that's that hopefully is original or at least you haven't seen it in a long time. So there's a brand new audience for it. If you could go back in time, what's the piece of advice you would give yourself? Don't hire an actress, if you hire an actress, a popular TV actress, and she then wants you to hire her friend or her, I mean, alleged boyfriend, we don't know, just know if she drops out, he's probably going to drop out too. So maybe you don't do that next time. Maybe you don't hire people who know each other so much. Maybe that you don't do that. And an encouragement for everyone to read the article for Movie Maker that you wrote. We didn't get into one eighth of all the things you talked about on that. And it was really... It's really edifying for indie filmmakers to read that. Yeah, it's a it's a horrifying experience production. <laughs> it really is. And we had so many things that went wrong. And like I said, there's an article, Movie Maker, about it, which is like just, it's not to be believed, but it is uh, obviously sadly true. Uh, just go go read it. <laughs> and the last question, is making movies hard? It's fucking hard. It is like, here's the thing. 
people that do this business are crazy people. I mean, I, I, I'm included in that, right? Like I, 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 you have to love it so much that you would do it for free. And I would do it for free if I didn't have a kid and didn't have like, you know, a mortgage and whatever else and this and that. But there, there, there's such a passion with, you have to have a real passion for it. You have to almost be willing to do it for free. You have to, you know, surround yourself with good people. You have to have a good team. You have to be uh, willing to listen to other people. You know, you have to take advice from, from where you can from people who've been there and know more than you and who can be mentors to you. And, you know, every step of the way when you make films, I feel like you'll, 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 you'll remember some of the things, some of the lessons you learned from the, first, the other time. So hopefully it's not going to be as hard, but there's always a new problem, right? Like there's always something else, right? Like uh, making movies is fucking hard. Thank you for coming on the show. So I know that part of coming on the show is to promote the AVOD release. Do you want to call it out right now? Sure. We're going to be on, I mean, listen, you can watch it where you want, but I'd rather you watch it on uh, um, Tubi or Freebie would be very helpful. <laughs> Pluto, Pluto TV, Roku, uh, you know, we're on a peacock. We're on uh, there's a there's a bunch of them. But if you really got to think about something, you want to help uh, a, you know poor independent filmmakers trying to pay you know pay his bills and stuff. Uh, you know, the Tubi and Freebie would be amazing if you could go watch it on there. And and within the first week of January when it comes on, because it would be lovely if that uh, blew up and was like in the top five and it got traction and you know did whatever it did. That would be lovely. It would be we would we would appreciate it. Um, do you, do you all have time for one more question? There's one thing I wanted to ask. Though. Yeah, keep, keep, keep on going, keep on going, whatever. You talked about all this review hunting and all the stuff that you did on the, the publicity side, like kind of leading up to your release and, and, your, and being distributed and everything. Is that all you by yourself? Are you doing this? Or is it like you and your team? Is it the director driving it? Who's driving this outreach for reviews and press? I mean, to be fair, I did it because I had nothing to do. I had nothing to do during COVID. <laughs> you know, I was just sitting there like, I, I had this mentality every day I got up in the morning during COVID and we had been released, right? Like, and especially this is especially during uh, VOD, right? From, uh, from April to uh, end of August, right? I'm going to sell a hundred copies of this movie. I don't know how I'm doing it today, but we're going to sell a hundred copies of this movie, right? And so how do we do that? Okay. Some more reviews. We need to get some more interviews here. We're going to do podcasts. We have done so many podcasts for this movie. I cannot tell you. I'm not going to even joke with you. And I tell you, we've probably done like 120 podcasts for this movie. And we're still doing them. I mean, this this press push for this AVOD release and this and that, we're going to be on probably 20, when I think when we don't finish with it, we're going to be on 20 different podcasts the first two weeks of January. That's what we're going to do. You know how to make us feel so special, Alok. We really, this is, feels like an exclusive <laughs> opportunity. We're really... I mean, look, it's, it's, it's a thing. Well, I mean, a lot of them are horror. A lot of them are horror, like horror. A lot of them are horror movie podcasts and yeah. stuff. And, and a lot, some of them, it's like, we've been on their podcast before and they're inviting us back to do, to talk about it's our like, top, ten, top 10. What's your favorite, favorite. scream? What was the yeah. bloodiest moment on set? Well, some of them are inviting us back to like talk about our top 10 horror movies of this last year. Oh, and cool. what we're doing that, we'll just like, hey, not so, hey come see the one VR. And it does. So, <laughs> you know, so I mean, you got to look, you got to do what you got to do. You need to be selling, selling yourself. Look, I feel like I did a pretty good job. You're making me feel like a piece of shit for the, for the release of my movie. <laughs> well, listen, listen, I was listen. really proud of my eight reviews on, IT, on Rotten Tomatoes and my, my 75% score. I was like, this is good. And now I'm like, damn, 
I am well, not even look, scratching here, the surface. Here, here's the thing: we had COVID. This, this is not a normal time of, of, yeah. of, of existence, I, right? I, I edited during COVID, so that was what I used for my. Yeah, my I mean, time. so look, it was, yeah, and and to be fair, it shouldn't be you doing it. It should be your producer. That's that's the that's the trick. The, of it. That was my last question. Uh, how do I get you to produce my next movie? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've I mean, been doing so, all this press myself, man. It's like send me, it's, send me, a, send me a script. It takes it takes right. a village, you know. I, I mean, I'll take stuff. a, I'll take a look. I mean, uh, you know, make sure it's it's, it's in its finest form, though, because I'm only going to read oh, it once. Sure. But you know, I like it, I'm not going to read it again. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you the scribble on my napkin that I just did. Yeah. <laughs> Are you a creative who just wrapped up your independent film, new book, or album release, or are you just looking for help on your fundraising campaign? Well, then you're going to need a marketing strategy. Smart House is a marketing agency that specializes in creative projects and independent films. They provide digital strategies, social media support, publicity services, branding, and fundraising strategies to help indie artists just like you. Smart House was founded to help indie artists with all budgets find their audience and bring their projects to the world. Smart House has helped a ton of artists reach their goals, including the Making Movies is Hard podcast. That's right. They're helping us grow our audience and they can help you too. Go to smarthousecreative.com to get started today. Liz, what do you remember about our talk with Alok? I remember he was very intense and had a lot of information to share, a lot of amazing tips. He almost like, he created a level of like hope for indie film or indie genre film in, in, in terms of all the the massive spotlight he generated for this film. Like, that's really amazing. I would say, and I'm, I should have given a little more of a hard time about this, I felt, as a podcast, really unspecial in that moment because <laughs> I felt like we were like a tool for him in a way to just get more rentals or more streams or whatever. And I like to think of this show as like a way that artists commune with each other to a degree and talk about our struggles. And we come, you know, you and me, we share and they share in this like this wonderful commiseration period. And I didn't feel that way at all from Alok. I felt like he was providing value. He was sharing information, but it was all to the end of the promotion of one br which is like a very fair thing to do but that is that was my experience and what do you remember yeah i mean he was definitely like talking up the movie and like with a really good focus but i do think like he he dropped a lot of gems and a lot of great information yeah. about filmmaking in general a lot of the things that he did for one br were really insightful and really interesting and it was so funny because like a lot of the things he talked about with the reviews was very similar to the process that I had done on the alternate that I had basically just finished at that time. But then like, he was like, he basically just never stopped. Like he started in 2019 <laughs> with Fantasia and it's already 2022 and he's still outreaching, reaching out for more reviews. And, and they have an impressive Rotten Tomatoes score and a really impressive amount of reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. I mean, he's got a lot of attention on IMDb. Uh, he's just got a lot of everything. Like, they really did a great job promoting this movie. It's on Netflix, for crying out loud. It's going to be on Tubi now. It's like, this movie is a fucking force. And I think it's a force because of Alok. Because <laughs> this guy's a force. This guy's crazy, man. Yeah. He's an insane yeah. promoter. And I mean, feel like that's the producer I want to work with on my next movie is somebody.
somebody who's a promotion machine where I don't have to be the promotion machine where they, I can have some support in that, <laughs> in that work. I mean, it freaking, I didn't even realize Fantasia 2019. It wasn't even 2020 Fantasia. It was 2019 Fantasia when their movie hit. So it's been around a minute and it still feels fresh because of coming up on shows like, yeah. like this, you know? And so really, I think it's a testament to like what you can do with the promotion of your indie film. Like it's really incredible. And I don't, I, I don't feel used the way you do. I feel like it was a mutual, <laughs> mutual using of each other, you know, like we, like we had a lot of great information. He got to talk about his movie, give him a little bit of a, of a, of a, you know, spotlight. You know, I think it's a, it's a win-win for all. I just get like, I get a little high when we talk to someone who shares something really like vulnerable, right? I get a yeah. little high. I don't know if you get high. I didn't get high from that yeah. experience. I got knowledge and I got, yeah. and I was impressed, but I didn't get that like connection with him. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's also kind of rare where that producer will give us that, right? Like that usually comes from like the writer yeah. or the director yeah. or maybe the actor, you know, like where you get that kind of emotional vulnerability but like producers are more like businessy and like more like, you know, although I think we got a little bit of that vulnerability a little bit with Mark Stoloroff, you know, just talking about all his projects and, oh, you yeah. know, like remember like, like when the way he talked about producing a movie was like this was a mag, the magnitude of the experience. Like you definitely felt it in the way that he, he spoke about those experiences. So yeah, maybe not, not going to happen with producers too, not to, you know, make it sound like producers are all just businessy. Not business all people. producers, all Rick. <laughs> Not yes. all, not all. But Liz, I think it's time for the game. No, I really just go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> the game. <laughs> all right. So Eric Toms, this is fresh, fresh off the presses. It's not really. It was, he said it two days ago. Eric Toms likes to send us a indie film quandary, quagmire problem to solve. I present it, you know, Eric whispers it in one of our ears, my ear in this circumstance. I share it with Eric for the first time and he hears the scenario and he sees how he would tackle it as an indie filmmaker. So this is a long one. Get ready. You've just finished the edit of your Labor of Love feature film. This journey has nearly has been nearly a decade in the making. Production was arduous because your lead actor was an absolute nightmare. Some days they refused to come out of their trailer, and other days they simply were nowhere to be found. You've secured distribution, but the company that you've signed up with is almost doing nothing in the way of promotion. It's at the same time that the film comes out, and the lead actor has run into problems with the law, and the media would like your take on it. If you make a big deal about the actor's actions on set, it would no doubt create a buzz that may work to your film's advantage from a PR standpoint. Do you... A, say no comment and then just let that actor's life play out, missing a chance to get eyes in your film. B, tell people how they acted on set, but nothing more. C, comment on the actor's actions on set and go so far as to blow it out of proportion, knowing that it may make a media frenzy, which will bring an audience to your film. Or D, other. What do you do, director? What do you do? Oh, man. I don't know. This is interesting because, like, I feel like I don't really know a lot about, like, you know, what, like, if I say something, like, what I could be sued over, <laughs> you know? Like, I probably would, oh, you know, take the time point. to, like, talk to a lawyer and be like, okay, well, like, what can I say here that will, you know, not get me potentially sued by this person <laughs> for, for speaking out? 
I, yeah. I don't know. They were a nightmare and they were, they were terrible to me personally and they were hard to work with. It's hard for me not to like just be honest and open about these things, you know, in general. That's just kind of how I am. I'm a very open person, but I would probably do some research to figure out like if I'm going to get in trouble for, for being honest. If I signed anything at some point that like, makes it so I can't be honest. I would just do that homework just to be safe. But uh if I was, I think I just would be very honest and open about it. And I, I probably wouldn't go as far as to defame this person or to like exaggerate or like call them out or like be a jerk about it. I would just be like very open and honest about the situation. And I think that would probably be the my my route. But as long as I knew I was protected and that I wasn't opening myself up for any kind of lawsuit or anything. But yeah, I mean, I always had these ideas when I was younger of like trying to get attention somehow by doing something completely radical, like streaking through San Francisco or something like <laughs> insane like that or pulling some kind of publicity stunt to like bring attention to me as a filmmaker. But, you know, that's just not my personality and like not my style. And I just don't know. That's not really like something I think is a good thing to do <laughs> as a person. Yeah. So I probably wouldn't, I wouldn't do the frenzy thing, but like, you know, if, if I was being, you know, approached by CNN or, you know, entertainment weekly or whatever variety, some big publication, and they were asking for my input, on something because I worked with this person, I probably would give a quote for sure. Like, but I would just make sure that it wasn't something that was going to bite me in the ass later. But what about you? What would you do? Probably say no comment. I think. (laughs) So your style. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, I, I haven't worked with a horrible person, but I worked with someone who is a little bit difficult. And when other directors or other producers asked me what it was like to work with that person, I was very honest. I was like, look, they're insecure. They were a little demanding. It wasn't fun to work with them, right? But if it's the media and that comment could follow them around, I don't know what's going on in their life, right? They could have drug addiction issues. They could have weird, just normal family trauma stuff. Like, I don't know what's going on with them. I don't want to get wrapped up in their story and I don't want to be associated with their story. So Mm. I would want to just say no comment. But what I would be doing is on the back end, I'd hire my own digital marketing company and we would we would do a digital marketing campaign using their name because their name would be hot right then and people would be searching and Googling. And we, I would do some sort of digital marketing campaign targeting their participation in the film, but not necessarily capitalizing on their bad behavior, if that makes sense, right? Like I would mm-hmm. probably pay for personal ads in the digital marketing sphere because it would feel like that's the moment to promote like hell. I I just don't want to be a part of this guy's story. That's why I would say no comment. Like it just mm. sounds real dramatic and unfun. Yeah, I, I think it like it would, it would kind of depend on the details, you know, like, yeah, like, I think it's also like to me, if like, do I want to help this person or or does this is this person indifferent to me? Right. So if I if I liked them yeah, and like I wanted to help them, then maybe I would, you know, not say anything. But if I like if they like did me wrong and were a jerk and like, you know, like almost ruined the movie and like I was and then we didn't have a good relationship and they like were just a mean person to me. Then I probably would be like more just willing to be honest, but I'm I'm kind of an honest person in general. Yeah, so that's sort of like why I, I that was like my gut to go in that direction. But yeah, I think these sort of things are there's a lot of details and minutia, you know, that are are important 
in making these kinds of decisions. But yeah, I like your answer, like trying, like using it to your advantage without like, you know, like being a jerk about it or like getting yourself wrapped up into it personally. You know, I think that's smart. Yeah. Hollywood likes to create feuds and I don't want to be a part of a feud. Like that's what I would be most afraid (laughs) of, actually. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I'm more of like the all press is good press sort of thing. So if like I was like going to be in a feud with like, I don't know, like Bruce Willis, (laughs) although that not whatever, whatever it is, like, I mean, I would be like, I don't know. That's not the worst scenario in the world, you know, as long as he's like not trying to kill me or something. Sure. You know, but like the I'm sure the Bruce Willis, Kevin Smith feud, like. I don't think it really hurt Kevin Smith in any way. It probably only helped him, you know. I don't think so. And I don't That's think a good it's point. really That's a really a good feud, example. You know, I think it was right. more like whatever. They had some rough days on set, you know. Who cares? <laughs> no big deal. All right. There's a little bonus thing I want to talk about, you know. It's the New Year, Liz. It's, uh, you know, January 2nd. I just want to know. Like, I mean, you've, you've got so much shit going on. Like, you've got so much shit going on. Like, I don't even know what to go, what's going on with you. You've got, like, like two or three movies you're working on. You've got a musical you're writing. you got an anthology movie. You've got this. You've got that. You've got some personal stuff. you got all these things. What are your big goals for 2023? Do you have, like, one solid goal or, like, one thing that you want to accomplish in 2023? Are you kind of more amorphous like you just want to have like like you know positive progress in your career as a filmmaker i want to shoot i want to finish feature three in 2023 it's very very important to me so whether it's control group or best friends forever i'm also attached to this comedy that's shooting in the bay area i don't i don't know if that's gonna happen but this is all to say like I'm going to find a way to finish a third feature in 2023. And forward progress in all projects would be great. But I think what you and me will always have a bunch of things in our minds that we want to accomplish. Whereas I would be, I'd like to think that I would be content just getting this one film done. That seems like more than enough to ask the universe for. And then, I don't know, my son's almost four. He'll be four in February. And I don't know when reading starts, but like, I really want to teach him to read. I really want Mm. him to know how to read. And I think that happens around four or five. So like, those are goals. Like, I would love to be able to, for him to have that like really, because every night we read to him and I would love the idea that he isn't dependent on us, right? Like he can pick up a book and read whenever he wants. And then I feel like if I don't do a third feature next year, and I know in like the last episode, you said something like, well, we have our lives. We have our whole lives. We could, sorry, this was like three episodes ago. You were like, we have our life, you know, like don't rush. We could slow down. I just don't feel that way. I feel like a lot of pressure and it's self-generated and it it feels like without a question, I'm going to work my ass off to try to make that third feature happen next year. And if I don't, I'm not going to beat myself up about it as long as I know that I've tried my hardest. But I don't do resolutions. Like I don't really, that would, I probably combust if I did resolutions. Mm. What What is in your mind for 2023? Well, first, first you f- follow up. So you made Speed of Life in 2020 is when it came out, right? Yes. Yeah, so this is the map. We shot Bread of Butter in 2013. We shot Speed of Life in 2018. And so I really want to shoot a third feature oh, and keep this five every year five years gap going. You want to do one. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Interesting. And that and that's the motivation is that you want to have the five year gap and you feel like if you wait longer, then you'll be failing in some way. Well, it's that. And it's also like, I don't want to get too much into it. But if we decide to have a second kid and if we're so lucky to have a second kid, 
I know that that's going to make things more difficult for me as a creator, yeah. right? True. So there's also like a biological timeline here yeah. at play because I'm 38 and like there's very few chances, you know, at this age, things get crazier. So it's not just that. It's like it feels like all of these forces of her combining to put like a lot of pressure on this year for me. Yeah. Well, if you're a five-year plan, that would be kind of sweet if you shot a movie in 2023 and then like you and yeah. let's say you ended up having a second kid it's like oh you've got a couple years you know to be with a kid while they're a baby and then like when they're a little bit older and they're yeah. three or whatever then you can go make off of your next movie and then you keep your you keep That's your spacing the way you want it you know and what i think is going to happen for you this is my own little personal prediction is that you're going to be shooting more frequently than that you know that like you're <laughs> gonna this one movie is gonna go and then you're going to make your other movie and then like you might even do two, you know, within mm. the next couple of years, you know. So I don't know. Knocking that's just my, my gut, you know, but uh, you. that's what I see for your future because you're such a hard worker and you're you've really I feel like, you know, the like you were talking like I think when we you started the show as a full time host, you were like working on Lady Parts and that was going to be your third feature. And you were like doing a lot of work on that. And then like since then you're now attached to so many projects and like you've completely changed your approach as a filmmaker. It seems that like, rather than focusing on one thing only, you've taken a lot of the advice that we've gotten from other guests where it's like have multiple, you know, pots going at once. Like don't just have one, you know? And I think that's going to lead to an explosion of creativity. So very exciting to see the growth and, yeah, I'm really excited about your your Patreon thing because I feel like you've had a lot of success with that in the few weeks that you've been doing it. And so I'm excited to see what that what that happens with that in 2023. Thank you. Thanks, Ulrich. <laughs> For me, yeah. I have less like urgency of like making my next movie. I mean, I would love to shoot a movie in 2023. I would be like over the moon if this one I'm working on happens, but like, I don't, I'm not going to put my any weight or pressure. Like I have to shoot feature two in 2023. I mean, it'd be so cool, but like, you know, I definitely want to like, just wait for the right time. Like either, you know, the right movie, the right offer comes or I get to direct it and get paid to do it, which would be incredible. Or the movie that I need to make flows out of me and I feel compelled to push it into production, you know, whatever it is, you know, I'll wait for that to happen when it when it needs to happen. One thing I will say, I would love to finish my next script in 2023. So I have one that I'm like 50% done on. You know, I've got another one that I'd love to write from the beginning, but like I'm not even going to put, I'm going to make it a roll softball for me. Like any feature script, if I can just finish a draft, full draft, beginning to end of one feature script in 2023, that's like what I'm aiming for, what my goal is. And I mean, of course, if I don't hit that and other things happen, I won't beat myself up about it, but but that is what I'm hoping to achieve in 2023. Because it'd be really cool to go to Austin next year and be like, I read, I wrote my next movie, blah. And like, you know, maybe I'll place in Austin. Probably not. <laughs> I'm not, definitely not going to say that that's going to happen. But I'll probably, if I, if I get it ready in time to submit it, that would be pretty cool to like at least submit something to Austin yeah. and have the chance of, of placing. That would be neat. So we'll see. All, all exciting things. I'm very like, you know, feel very excited about where I'm at as a filmmaker. It feels really great to have the movie out in the world. I'm really like thrilled every time I get an email or a text from somebody saying they watched it. This, I don't know if I talked about it on the show, but uh, this guy I met at Austin texted me over Thanksgiving and showed me photos of his screen watching Aww. my movie with his mom. Oh! <gasps> 
like either the day before or the day after Thanksgiving or maybe even on Thanksgiving. I don't know. And it was just so sweet. He's like, I went home for Thanksgiving and I watched my movie with your mom. I loved it. Here are all my questions, you know, whatever. And it was just so sweet. So yeah, I make sure you get this guy's name right. I think it's Jacoby, but yeah, Jacoby from Austin, you know, much love for you for that email and that interchange. Interesting to watch that with your mom, right? Like, I wouldn't necessarily think it's family viewing, but I love that he's close enough with his mom to watch it together. I think maybe it was because, like, you know, he's he's an aspiring filmmaker, and it's like, oh, I met this filmmaker in Austin who made this movie. Let's check it out. You know, like, this is what I want to do with my life. Like, I hope to be making my own movie someday, you know? And I think he likes sci-fi, and maybe his mom likes sci-fi. I don't know. So maybe I could see the reasons of making sense. But basically, I'm super honored that he did that. (laughs) and like really like touch that he he sent me these photos and we had a conversation about it afterwards so jacoby you rock wherever you are if you listen to the show i think he might listen maybe he doesn't but uh jacoby you're amazing thank you for sending that to me (laughs) all right i want to do for you what you did for me and say something very supportive and genuine (laughs) and i just want to say that you should be very proud you should be very proud and just a recognition that this podcast is reflective of all of the work it took to make your first feature right like it's not just your first feature it's the first feature that was documented that all of these interviews and all of this soul searching and data gathering and recon informed your entire process so i think you should be incredibly proud of this little mini empire that you created in association with your first film. I think that's really, really remarkable. And I wish if I could, you know, take something from you, like it would, I would love to be able to relax and enjoy things more. So you already have that asset that's good for like mental health and lack of heart attacks in life and like just letting go a little bit. So like, I guess also just be proud of the fact that you've already figured out that very tough life thing of being able to relax. (laughs) There's not many filmmakers Mm -hmm. who can just kind of like enjoy themselves. I don't think, I haven't met a lot of filmmakers who can enjoy themselves. So good for you is all I'm saying. Oh, thanks Liz. And it it, it definitely didn't enjoy myself at all times, but I'm, I'm basically trying to seek the enjoyment in everything that I do as a filmmaker, you know? And yeah, there's a lot of fun to be had out there in the world of filmmaking, you know? And I think, especially when you have a success, it's, it's good to enjoy it and not stress over it because, you know, not everyone gets these chances and you may not get it again. So enjoy it while it's happening, you know? So, Aw, Liz, this is fun. (laughs) Very sweet, (laughs) sweet episode. (laughs) In true Liz fashion, I want to cut it off as soon as possible and and end the show by saying you can all send us a question, (laughs) comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Please support the International Screenwriters Association, which is a partner of ours that we love. Go to networkisa.org. They have a 25 top writers list. They publish your logline to a network of industry professionals. They have a lot of programs, so support them. Thanks to Alok Mishra for coming on the show, for reaching out to us in the first place. Thanks to editor Jeff Breimut for doing the editing. Thanks to our producer Eric Toms for being awesome. Happy New Year, everyone. Thanks to you for listening and talk to you all next week.
Loeb talks about uh, how he and his team raise money for the future. For the future. Ah, boo. Bad, bad Jeff. I'm going to do it again. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallin' drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallin' wherever you get your podcasts.